Oath Hermes podcast. Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Hello, friends and listeners, and welcome to a new episode of the Thoth Hermes podcast. Today it's Sunday, as always, and it is June the 6th, June the 6th, 2021. I am Rudolf, and I am your host, and this is episode number seven of the season number six. Well, we are advancing already in season number six. And, uh, well, my guest today, the guest for the interview that you're going to hear in a few moments, will be Sarah Mastros. Sarah Mastros, who I think you have heard about. She calls herself the Witch of Pennsylvania. But we'll hear more about her in a few moments. I'm happy that we have returned to our show and that hope I, that, that you have enjoyed last week's episode with Jack Fox Williams. If you have not listened to that yet, well, why don't you go back to the website to thoughthermes.com, T-H-O-T-H-E-R-M-E-S.com and listen to it. And to all the other episodes you'll find there, including, of course, and that's very important, the show notes for each of the shows. And uh, while you're there, just leave me a message. I enjoy your messages and it would be lovely to get one from you. Either a voicemail, which you can use the tab voicemail for on the website, or you go and write a message on the communication page. But there's also a good old email, info at thoshermes.com or of course Twitter and Facebook, where we are highly present and we'll try to answer all your messages. That would be lovely to get one from you. And while you're on the webpage, have a look at that little button that says Patreon donation there. Would be really important and great to get you as a patron of this show as about 45 people are already. We need more of you. We need to sustain this show. It's not much money that we need, but we need a little more still. And, um, well, with $1 per episode, you're already in and a patron of the show. Please help us with that. And if you prefer a one-off donation, that's also possible. Just click on the donation button on the website and do the rest. Thank you for that. And thanks to all of those who have done so already. Well, Sarah Mastros, I said, is our guest today. Witches and Orpheus is the title, and we'll hear in a moment why this is the case. Um, but as always, before we go into the interview, we are going to hear a piece of music. And, well, we are returning to play music from somebody that you have heard already, I believe, twice on the Fall Thermos podcast, Heather Dale. Heather Dale, who is a Canadian musician. She does lovely music from... She has Celtic roots herself, so you can hear that, of course, her music is strongly influenced by that, but she does all kinds of uh, 
transcending the limits of of her traditions. So we have ballads and folk songs on some end, but also incantations she has been doing lately. We have played some of them before, and today I thought I'll bring her back because she's always always really nice to listen to. And we do three very different styles of her music to present her as the full artist that she is, Heather Dale. She, as I said, is from Canada and her latest uh, release is Incantations number two. We'll hear one of those in the middle between the interview. But for now, let's go to the first song by her, which is called, well, I think when we talk about paganism and witchcraft etc it's good choice it's called sir gawain and the green knight so listen to heatherdale sir gawain and the green knight and just enjoy new year's day Dawning wet on Britain's shore King's Hall roused by a pounding on the door A giant knight dressed in green never seen before Hefts an axe and holds it high and lets a challenge roar You craven men may fear dishonor But you fear my vengeance more Chills you like a wraith, and it's don't you gird about your waist. It's rare the man who hold to faith and face me in the morning. Shame on you, brothers, on your silence. Took the axe and struck his blow, brought the giant low. Raised his head and held it high and met the giant's eye. And cried, I'll meet your vengeance in a year and we'll see who'll die. You or I. That's fear that chills you like a wraith. And it's don't you. Within about three days, no land. 
But vain the Baroness's hope Gawain's not swayed Another lady holds his own She offers body, offers land But each advance is spurned She puts belt into his hand A gift of magic earned By constancy in face of all temptation To his given and The Green Knight, a lovely song by Canadian artist Heather Dale, written, composed and interpreted by her and her musicians. And she'll return later on in this show, of course. But now let's turn to our guest of today and we are going to speak, as I said, to Sarah Mastros. Sarah, she lives uh, in Pennsylvania. She is a very active witch, but she used to be a mathematician also. So she's going to tell us a bit about that. And um, what I find interesting beyond her talk about tarot and astrology and medium shit and etc. etc. is that she also translates the Orphic hymns into English. And uh, those translations are really quite something and are highly interesting and I, I really like them. Um, well, they are uh, the texts, the original texts are among the earliest texts that have been recorded by mankind and it would be a pity if they got lost. So there are, of course, translations in several languages, also into English, that uh, exist, but she takes the liberty to approach them in her own way. And as I now usually read a few texts from the author or from the artist that we are presenting in our interview, um, I think the best thing to do is to read to you some of those short hymns that Sarah has translated. And well, who better could who could better do that than she herself? But uh, so I 
will have for you now three short hymns, three hymns from the Orphic hymns translated by Sara Mastros. First one is a hymn to Hecate. The second one is a hymn to the moon. Those two will be read by Sara herself. And to round it up, I will read for you a hymn to Gaia. Hecate, Anadia, Triadidas most lovely, we call to you now, O saffron-robed lady. You rule the heavens above and the black deeps below. You skate across waves and surf the sea's flow. Sorcerer's soul, you dance with the dead and the deer and the dogs who delight in your tread. Persian one, loner, irresistible queen, you roar like a beast beneath the moon's gleam. Unarmed yet unconquered, bull-drawn charioteer, holding the keys of the cosmos and the heavenly sphere. You rule over nymphs and haunt the high places, nurturing children with the charm of the graces. We pray, hallowed maiden, as your incense we light, that you indulge your initiates and visit our rites. Hear us, holy goddess, night-shining queen, light-bringer, radiant one, splendid Selene, cow-horned moon racing through the night, nocturnal, torch-bearing maiden of light, waxing, waning, male and female combined, luminous silver-rayed mother of time, whose warm-glowing orb illumines the night, all-seeing, vigilant, beautiful, bright, Mother of ages, fruit-bearing moon, whose warm glowing orb reflects the night of high noon. The rich, quiet black is your eternal delight. You grant favor and luck, shining jewel of the night. Marshal of stars, purple-cloaked, silver-veiled. Queen of the night, Octiophis we hail. Shine on our rites with your all-blessing rays. O maiden, accept your initiate's praise. Great Gaia, Godmother, All-Mother of Humanity, All-Nourishing, Flush-Rooting Font of Fertility, Eldest Immortal, you are really reborn, as the mother of fecundity who calls to the corn. With growing tumescence of the ripening ears, you call forth the seasons, giving order to years. In the pain of travail, you bring forth three from root, giving birth to multi-hued multitudes of blossom and fruit. Generous grandmother, our immortal home, rejoicing in rain smell, the ichor of stone. You're the delicate smell of the graceful green shoots and the whirling of stars in their far cosmic roots. Many blessed goddess of fruit and of seed, with the kind-hearted Horai, fulfill my great need. Okay, with those three hymns, you got an idea of her work. And, well, I won't keep you much longer. We go to join Sarah now in her Pennsylvania, where she lives, and... We'll have a nice talk to her. And um, as always, you're used to that again. Now you will be brought back here and we will listen to some music after about 30, 34 minutes to be exact in this case. 
And uh, well, I meet you then. But for now, let's go and meet Sarah Mastros. Here comes the interview. I have the great pleasure to welcome here on the Thought Hermes podcast cast today, Sarah Mastros. Sarah, we meet her in the Eastern United States, uh, and uh, it's lovely to talk to you here tonight, Sarah. Welcome, welcome on the Thought Hermes podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's a pleasure. And actually, I have to say, I found out about you by two uh, paths. One was uh, your participation lately in the Magical Women Conference, mm -hmm. where I always have a look what they are doing because we have also collaborated earlier. And um, I always find very interesting interview partners there. Um, and you were one of them. So that, that was great. But also uh, Chris Roberts, uh, who talked to me about you. And Chris, he, as many of our listeners, know has written that wonderful uh, music which is our intro and outro music for this podcast so he uh, thank you once again chris for for that it's been a while that this is on and everybody knows that very beautiful piece of music so that's what um well that's how i found out about you sarah but now You have to tell our listeners first before we start and talk about Sarah. And um, when I go on your website, you also teach witchcraft classes, as you, I think, call them. And what struck me there is that you immediately say, but hang on, this is not Wicca. Okay, I've heard that before. It's not traditional witchcraft either. It's something else, right? And well, Why don't you explain us what this something else is and what what you teach there and how you define witchcraft? Sure. So particularly in my introductory class, I try and keep it sort of what I think of as like paradigm neutral. I'm making little air quotes with my fingers mm -hmm. that people can't see. So um, and that is to say, like, I think Wiccans like will find it easy to work with uh, traditional witches will. But so will chaos magicians. And so will sort of anybody else. Right. Okay. So for me personally, like when I talk about witchcraft, I am less interested in sort of the like religious aspects of it. Although let me rephrase that personally, right? I am interested in those aspects, right? But in my teaching, I really am usually trying to focus on sort of like the explicitly magical aspects, right? Okay. So like it, witchcraft as a craft, like as a thing you do and not mm -hmm. as much as a thing you like be or think about. Although personally, I am also very invested in being and thinking. Yeah. So it's a non-dogmatic approach in a way. I mean, right? I try, like I, I try for it to be non-dogmatic. I mean, clearly I have my own beliefs, but it's mostly, especially in intro classes, I try and keep it so that like you could kind of go from there into anywhere. So I'm really trying to focus on like skills instead of like Like my goal when I'm writing a lesson is less that I think to myself, like after this lesson, what will the students know? I'm really thinking after this lesson, what can a student do? Do, right. You know what I mean? Mm. Like things they can do, like, and right. And yeah. I try and keep it sort of, I don't know, as like loose as I can about the like metaphysical structure it's put in. But I will say like, personally, I think my beliefs are probably somewhere in the like, I don't know neo-pagan eco-animist 
region, but I'm, <laughs> okay. I'm disinclined to put specific labels on them, except that like I am sort of specifically, I participate in a, a pagan monastic order called the Sisterhood of the Crocopeplos. So like okay. I do have like this one very specific religious practice and like I think some people know me from my work with the Orphic hymns, which are also sort of like exactly a specific type of religiosity. Exactly. We come to that and to what you just said about your personal beliefs and sure. activity also in a bit in a moment, I would mm -hmm. think. Um, but um, so if if today uh, a young or not so young person would like to start in magic, yeah, mm -hmm. right. Um, of course, you would like them to attend your course, but what would well, you in general um, tell them to do because today the internet right. is such a vast vast thing uh, of, of possibilities so right agree what would so you when, suggest to such a young person right. so when i was coming up in magic the problem was the opposite right like what mm -hmm. i did was like whatever i could find sure you know and a lot of those things i sort of knew right away like oh this isn't like exactly how i want to be doing this but like i just didn't have other options right mm -hmm. and i think that there's value in that right so one thing that i suggest to young people is that they kind of like play the field do you know what i mean like don't don't like sort of pick one style and like get married to it on the first date do you know what i mean like try out a lot of different right. things and sort of feel out what works for you but the single biggest piece of advice i have for new people is to find like actual human teachers and co-magicians i really actually think it's more important that they have like co-magicians that are in person that they can like mm -hmm. inter like be in the same room with. Right. Yes. I think that is the most valuable thing they can do is find like, and it, and whether or not those people sort of work the same kind of magic as they do is much, much less important than then just being like good, solid people that they can trust and rely on. And they can all grow together because I think there's a lot of value. You know, I had co-magicians very early Right. Mm -hmm. Like I went to like like I went to high school with like my BFF and I, you know, okay. met each other in Girl Scouts in the third grade. Mm -hmm. And so like mm -hmm. we came up in magic together, although her practice is really quite different than mine. So today she's a naturopath and an acupuncturist. And she was always very focused on like the like healing. herbal and mm -hmm. healing part of it. Mm -hmm. And also mm -hmm. the like parapsychology parts like psychism which are not necessarily the pieces that like i was more interested or at least i started out coming at it from a more like pagan religious you know what i mean i was i was interested in like mythology and history but also in like you know potions and amulets and stuff and i think it i think it really helped both of us to always be having to explain it to uh, someone exchange, else yeah, in like yeah, a slightly yeah. different language like what mm -hmm. she did and what i did you know became more and more similar like now i think you know there's a big overlap because we did it together of course. right but you know there's stuff she does and stuff i do and i think it paid off to have to complimentary basically yeah and yeah, to, yeah, and yeah, to yeah, always yeah. you know there's a when you're when you're doing it all by yourself It's really easy to like fall into this sort of trap where it ends up being really entirely in your head and you never actually have to explain it to anybody else or sure. like justify it to anybody else. Like there were plenty of times where I, she'd be like, yeah, Sarah, no, like you're full of crap. That's not true at all. This spell obviously did not work. You yeah. know what I mean? And like it keeps yeah, you sure. honest by having somebody yeah. you have to like yeah. show. Yeah. So, so, and, yeah. and on the other end too, like when you start to get disappointed, there's somebody to encourage you. 
Mm-hmm. You know, so that's mm-hmm. my biggest piece of advice is as fast as you can find and and there's value in the internet, like talking to people on the internet as well, but there is no substitute for being physically in a room with another human being doing magic. Which for the last 18 months has not has been, been easy. Been, this, <laughs> this Saturday, my coven had our first, like, it, like yeah. I had... I had like six other people in my living room all at the same time. We all wow. did magic together and it was amazing. It was the first time I'm we've done that in a sure. long time. I'm sure. But now you you started talking about your your youth. So let's start about your youth and your background a little bit more in depth. So um, h- how did that all start for you? I mean, were you you at age five suddenly discovering that's you or how did so it all start? It's sort of complicated, right? Um, and I feel like there are so many different pieces that fed into it. It's hard for me to tell them apart. So I'm just going to like tell a little story about my childhood. Sure. Right. So first off is like I grew up, I think, in like a different environment than a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Right. So I grew up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which uh, is known as like Amish country. Right. Yes. So I, the Amish are a a very traditional like they live as if it's 1670 mm-hmm. Anabaptist Christian cult, which like. I guess we're not supposed to call it a cult, but I mean, okay. Yeah. Like, I mean, I did not grow up Amish or anything, but like I grew up in that community in the sense, like I went to school with some Amish kids, I guess. In the land, so to speak. In the land. And in particular, like I grew up in a, in the land, like capital L land, like where I lived, there was still a genuine sense of like, the land being like the foundation of the community, right? Like there was a lot of farming, but even people like my family who had nothing to do with farming, like I grew up in the city part, right? Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. there was still a deep love for the land. So I grew up with a lot of like local history and folktales and stuff. Mm -hmm. In addition, Mm -hmm. right, I grew up with like two intact non-mainstream American cultures, right? So I'm Jewish on my mother's side and Greek on my father's side. And those were both like, like not notional. Do you know what I mean? Like, like we did things in those cultures. Like I was implanted in those cultures. Right. Right. So, so Astros this, is not an artist's name because of the Orphic Kims. It's really, no, no, that's, name. that's, yeah, that's my, <laughs> right. my father's name and his father's name. And like, you know, okay. yeah. I mean, I guess it's not his father's father's name was master yeah. Polly in Greek okay. uh, family legend says they had to shorten it. They owned a, um, like a, a restaurant, which was actually a speakeasy, right? And it was said like that Mestru Mihali Cafe wouldn't fit on the sign. So that's why they had to shorten it. But I think it was actually shortened at Ellis Island yeah. when they came over. Um, so like I came up with all of that, but in particular, like unlike many Americans, like I didn't come up Christian. So like mm-hmm. that kind of magic, like it was never like forbidden, right? Like that sort of stuff. Like, I mean, I don't know. I think my parents thought it was like silly, I'm like, I'd grow out of it, but there was no like friction. Right. But I remember, so I guess what I'll say is like, I just sort of always did that. Like, you know, I, I read, I heard fairy tales as a little kid. And when I heard about witches, I was like, oh yeah, that's me. Like I want to be that. But I remember the day, the exact day when I learned that like other people were also witches is the way I think about it. Like I knew you could learn magic from a tree. I already knew that, but I didn't know other like, people thought that but when i was eight my mostly estranged grandfather sent me like a gift certificate and a catalog to like a mail order book company and like i grew up in the country like my access to books was not that high do you know what i mean i had like whatever our local library had or like Mm. whatever you could find at the barnes and noble 
which in, you know, the 1990s was basically nothing. There was like one yeah. book on witchcraft in the library, but you kind of had to read between the lines. Mm. But I got this catalog and I'm eight years old in this story. And in the catalog, there is a section titled witchcraft and it was in the nonfiction section. And I knew what nonfiction meant. That meant it was real. <laughs> and I was excited. So I bought my first, I bought two books out of the catalog. The first one was, I feel bad. I actually don't remember the exact title of this book. It's Ray Buckland's. I always call it the Big Blue Book of Bibbidi Bobbidi Boo. Yeah, but Ray like, Buckland, I, of course. Yeah, I think my, it's just God. called like Complete uh, Guide let's, to Witchcraft. Let's feel bad together. We should know that name. Yeah, I don't yeah, know what yeah, that. Yeah, but yeah, everybody, yeah. everybody actually knows what book I mean. It's uh, the absolutely. Big Blue one by Ray Buckland. Yeah. Has a pentagram. That was my first book, and it was you know fine. Like honestly, it was probably among the best books I could have gotten into in the like early i guess this is like the late 80s or early 90s. i think it's called buckland's complete book of witchcraft yeah and that, uh, like, uh, yeah, that yeah. book was fine although in truth it is not necessarily a book i would recommend to beginners now i think sure. there are better options in the market now. but it was you know fine but here's what i feel like i got out of that book like one witches are real and i can be a witch that was the most important thing i learned in that book mm -hmm. two like Learning to be a witch is hard. Like it's you actually have to learn things and do things. You can't just be like, I'm a witch and then you're a witch. You have to like learn stuff and do stuff. I believe that that I'm glad that book said that. And then the third thing I learned was that like you can like witchcraft is like hidden in history and mythology and stuff, and if you read carefully you can find it. All mm -hmm. of that I still definitely believe. I learned a lot of stuff in that book that I do not any longer believe. Like you have to have like one male god and one female god. Mm -hmm. So when I was at this point in the story, I think I'm probably like 11. Um, I like had to dedicate myself to a god and a goddess, I was told. So I picked Hermes and Hecate, who one now are like, you know, basically the most gender queer gods I could have picked. Yeah, Except I guess yeah. maybe Dionysus. I mean, there are other choices, but like <laughs> that is not like what they meant by lord and lady. Clearly, that is not who Certainly they meant. Certainly not. Yeah, but yeah. I don't know. I, I guess I dedicated myself to Hermes and Hecate when I was like 11, and that has gone very well for me. Like, I had no regrets. That's been great. They well, like they've done well like a by good me, choice, you know, <laughs> um, and the other book I got, I think, was in some ways it's harder for me to say exactly like things I learned from it, because, you know, that Buckland book, it's almost like a workbook. Do you know what I mean? It's really clear, like do this, do this, which I think I really liked that part of it. And I feel like when I write, I'm kind of modeling that like it's a workbook. I want you to do things. The other book was very different, it was called An Encyclopedia of White Witchcraft. It's by a woman named Patty Slade. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's basically what we would now call traditional witchcraft, but it's not, it's a little, this is in no way a bad thing, right? I kind of like this about traditional witchcraft, but it can be a little like ooky spooky and it's aesthetic. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. this was like, you know, a more like lighter summer timey like outdoor foresty like aesthetic but in terms of practice it was sort of like a mixture of some british traditional witchcraft and some yeah sort of like high wicca like gardnerian and alexandrian type stuff mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. honestly that book was inspiring because it seemed like she really seemed like she had like a a tradition that like she had developed out of her family practices and like with her neighbors, their family practices. Do you know what I mean? Okay. So like book Buckland was 
better at like teaching me things. But that Patty Slade, that was more the kind of witchcraft I wanted. Like mm-hmm. Ray Buckland seemed like a religion that had like rules. Mm-hmm. And Patty Slade's witchcraft seemed like a cultural practice, like a folk practice, which was more of what I actually wanted. So those yeah. two books together, I actually think like I really lucked into. Like I think in terms of beginner books that were available in the market, they were really good. Right. right. And so right. once I had those books, as I mentioned, my BFF, I don't know if she wants to be name dropped here. So I'm just going to call okay. her Deb. Um, yeah. Like, you know, we met in Girl Scouts when we were quite young. So we were doing all of this together. Like I always yeah. had a partner and we re- we really believed it when they meant when they said, like, you can just find it between the lines in history and fairy tales. So in truth, that's most of where I learned it. OK. Um, in seventh grade, my history textbook had some translated Sumerian spells. And that was the first time I ever, like, the instant I read that, so the one that I remember, uh, I don't know if I remember it word for word, it's a translation, I believe, that the history textbook actually doesn't say who translated it, but these days I'm almost positive it's Thorkeel Jacobson, um, who, like, I didn't realize until I was an adult, but if you read my spells, you can really feel the influence of, like, his language on them. Okay. Like, my magic, like, that's where I learned what magic poetry sounds like. So if anybody has never read Thorkeel Jacobson, like, translating uh, Mesopotamian texts, I really, really recommend them. They're quite good. Okay. okay. Um, and it was a spell, it was a curse, and it starts off uh, scorching fire, warlike son of heaven, right? And, like, I, I can't really say, but the first time I read that, I was like, oh, shit, this is, like, real witchcraft and not that, like, this is in no way a commentary on Wicked. This is a commentary on, like, by this point, like, you know, early 90s pop witchcraft. But I was like, oh, shit, this is real and not, like, that Barnes & Noble shit. Like, I immediately, I was like, there is a difference in power and structure between this mm-hmm. magic and that magic. And I was sold, right? Mm-hmm. So I talked to my history teacher. I was like, where can I learn more? And she was, I mean, she sent me the Epic of Gilgamesh, which was cool, but not exactly what I wanted. Right? Yeah, but exactly. it built from there. That's when I really, right. like, I was like, oh, there are, like, magical texts. Like, I don't have to learn this from a fairy tale. Yeah. And that's when I just set my heart on, like, getting my hands on real magic texts. I, I finally, like, finagled my way into a, you know, I was, I'm still in, I'm in seventh grade of this, story. So it took some doing, but I got, a, like, a card to the local university library, and they had better books. And that's where I started, right? So I sort of cut my teeth basically in the Keys of Solomon, right, was the right. first sort of, like, whole magic book I had access sure, to. Sure, sure. And I don't know. And then I just kept going from there. But that's sort of the story. That's my origin story. Now I, I have to, well, that's a very interesting story. And we come back to that in one second. Sure. Uh, I have to hold you with one question. I like mm-hmm. to ask people like you who are very knowledgeable and have a lot of experience, definition questions. Okay. So uh, define for us your definition. Give us your definition of which. What, what is a witch for you? So I think which one is like a person, right? It's a description of a person and the description of a person, not based on what they think, not based on what they believe, but, but they're based on what they do, right? Mm-hmm. So a witch is someone who has access to non-normal power to impact the world around her in a way that her neighbors do not understand and are a little bit um, freaked out by. Like, I really think that's the core of it. Like, what makes you a witch is that you do stuff and you have a reputation for doing stuff. 
that so, like other so you, you people show it, but you, do, you, you don't do it in a hidden way. Yes. I mean, mm -hmm. maybe you're trying to hide it, but honestly, I feel like I feel like if you're a hundred percent successful at hiding it, like I think that genuinely, like a witch has a sort of aura of uncanniness around her. her. I'm using female, but like you know, it, like which is not really a gendered word. Okay. Even though traditionally in English it is like anybody sure. can be a witch, yeah. right? I'm just oh, yeah, using her yeah. sort of by default, right? Yeah. But I really do think that witchcraft is about, you know, there is an element of being slightly out of step with kind of like commonly accepted rules mm -hmm. and regulations. Like you're mm -hmm. cheating. You're mm -hmm. cheating at like the rules of how the world works and right. at least a little bit visible on you. Yeah. Yeah. yeah some I people see. like and some people don't. don't you know? Yeah, exactly. And now let's go back to where we just took off, because um, you were talking about those grimoires and your discovery of the, let's say, Middle Eastern magic uh, at that point. Um, and that's interesting because I honestly, that it's a combination that is not so much around of somebody who defines herself well. or himself as a witch and not as a magician or high magic or whatever. Uh, and on the other side works with the grimoires, all the classical grimoires. Sure. So what brought those things together for you? Well, I will say that for a long time, right, in like my 20s, I really did avoid using the wit word witch to self-identify and instead identify it as a magician or a cultist. For me and I'm not saying this is why other people do it but for me personally I know because I'm me that choice was motivated 100% by internalized misogyny like I was like mm -hmm. oh I don't do that loser girl magic I do like okay. the awesome boy magic which like mm -hmm. is ridiculous um, and now the reason I use witch usually instead of like sorceress or magician or anything like that is generally sort of the opposite like I am really making Like it isn't my choice of that word is explicitly political. Like that's yeah. why I like okay. witch better. Okay. Yeah. But yeah. I am happy to identify also as a magician, magician, and also as a sorceress. Like sorceress, I do yeah. all yeah. of those things, and I don't think they're necessarily all the same, right? I think some people do only one, but I broadly am really I would just say commitment averse, and I don't like to be tied down to any one specific yeah. kind yeah. of yeah. thing. But yeah. I do generally yeah. have a preference for older and more like bookish magic is kind of my mm -hmm. natural preference. Although these days I've really been trying to do a lot more like land based practice, which is because right. I recently, you know, until I was from when I was 18, I moved out of my parents' house until four years ago. I had never lived in the same place for more than two years, but okay. I bought a house and I like own a little bit of land now in the city. So I'm like more invested in like rapidly rooting Has that changed the way you root your magic? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like I used to mm. do, I broadly think of there being like, you know, there's a lot of different ways to categorize magic. But mm. I think one way is you have this kind of continuum from like a deeply rooted, very local practice where like the primary spirits you work with are the spirits of like the specific land and eco region that you are in. And then mm -hmm. there's another kind, which is like crossroads magic, which you can like take anywhere with you. Mm -hmm. Right. And mm -hmm. when you're somebody like me who just moved a lot, you know what I mean? In those like sure. 20 years, I had probably 30 addresses. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So like That's that, a lot. Yeah. that <laughs> land kind of, and most of them were in like broadly the same eco region. Right. And sometimes I was just moving across town, but a lot of times I was moving like state to state, like far. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah, so that yeah, land base yeah. kind of was just like, I didn't have that much experience with it because I kept moving. 
You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. So like sure, it has definitely changed the balance in the sense. And, yeah. and I, I feel like I'm sort of deficient in that land based kind, so I'm really leading into it now. Right? But I still uh, love the crossroads kind, which is the kind I de- came up with. You know. You certainly developed and adapted yourself to that type of life that you had to lead and therefore I mean, also your magic but yeah and your magic would adapt to now, that as well you know? right yeah, yeah yeah i feel like i feel like that traveling that's great when you're young but as i get older i'm like hmm mm, I'm with i don't want to live with in you a band that. you know i'm like, with you on that yeah yeah absolutely let's not forget to go back when we were 18 because that's where we left off still you said something a word before that hit me i have to ask okay. you about that you said uh, the way you categorize magic and mm-hmm. that's i find that interesting how do you categorize magic there are others who hate to do that and and yeah. uh, so how do you do it and what does it mean so, to you and i have a lot of sympathy for people who don't like to do it i also really don't like to do it but i think like you know the thing about talking to other magicians, which is why I encourage people to do it young, is you actually kind of have to do that if you're going to, like, you know, English doesn't have a lot of technical jargon for this. Of course. Well developed. So you do actually always have to do this defining thing every time you talk to somebody new. So depending on context, some ways that I define, like I categorize magic is somewhere on that like local versus like peripatetic scale. Right. Is it like local magic or wandering? And one of the ways I thought about that as a kid is like, you know, my Greek family were recent immigrants. Right. Like my dad was born in the United States, but like recent immigrants and I including like like I grew up with a lot of people who like grew up in Greece, spoke Greek and their Mm -hmm. Greekness to them. They were really like in the like as a family and a community and my family was one of the first greek families in the town where i lived mm-hmm. like my great like they helped found the greek church right but but we'd been there for a while right my family which meant that i was related to basically every greek person in town right. like if they'd been there long enough to get married they married into my family in one way or another. Yeah, there just weren't yeah, that many Greeks, yeah, yeah, right yeah. or like my dad they married out which at least when my dad did it was not thoroughly approved of but i mean mm-hmm. they liked my mom they got i don't know by the time i was old enough to remember they had gotten over yeah right yeah. <laughs> and right but it was a different it was clear that like they had to understand what their greekness meant when it wasn't about living on the island of Kos. and it was an island so like they had a very clear relatively small defined like piece of land that like yes. where their ancestors bones lay for a long time whereas my mom's family is jewish and so, like, you know, it, it was a diaspora culture. Exactly. It was just always the, the opposite. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and so, yeah. like, I kind of grew up with these two cultures on two ends of that. Right. The Greekness mm-hmm. was very rooted. Right. And, yeah. and again, also, I grew up in a place that I loved, like, that land. I loved the land. And the land was amazing. You know what I mean? It's fertile and lush. Like, it's one of, it's one of the most fertile, non-irrigated places in the United States. Like, mm-hmm. it's just mm-hmm. good land. Right. And it's land that people sort of have been taken care of, right? And then on the other side, I had this like wandering culture, right? So that's one way I categorize it. Sometimes I categorize between like, I guess what we would call like high magic and low magic. But honestly, I think the big, historically, I think the biggest difference between high magic and low magic is that high magic requires literacy and low magic doesn't. And since we live in a culture of almost ubiquitous literacy, like I think that distinction is not, I think that distinction matters more when you're talking about like historical things. Like, I think it means more. Whereas in our culture, that spectrum is a little fuzzy because if you can read, then you do all of that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And and it has a kind of a, the the word low makes the, makes 
makes it less interesting or whatever and that's no good anyway so, i feel the yeah, opposite yeah. like i feel like it's like mm. low down dirty cunt magic which is the exact kind i am looking yeah. for thank you yeah sure so but like, at the same time yeah. you see it's defining low and high is defining any way or another but it's defining yeah maybe exactly, not in the exactly. Right way, so i don't right? usually mm. use those words particularly in modern magic where i think it makes not a lot of sense no, but i usually prefer even in like I'm more prone to say like literate and folk magic mm-hmm. when I want yeah. to distinguish, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, um, yeah, I think see. there's a, mm-hmm. also a distinction between like solitary magic, magic that you do yourself, and group mm-hmm. magic. That's right? interesting. Like they, as structurally, a, point. Yeah. a spell that I'm designing for one person to do themselves is very different than a spell that is designed for a group. Like, so that's yeah. a distinction. You know, I guess I think of like all these categories, and then I also think about categories like. Particularly when I'm talking about historical magic, like there is a difference between like what I think of as broadly like pan Levantine magic, right? So magic of like the Eastern Mediterranean, particularly okay. in late antiquity, right? Mm-hmm. That's like one coherent cultural unit and the magic in there, like it just has a certain flavor. It works a certain way. You can kind of recognize it, right? And I, I might categorize that distinct from like... Mm, Nordic, sub-Roman uh, Britain magic, yeah, sub, right, that, yeah, which yeah. I know less about, but it's like kind of another popular thing. Mm-hmm, like, so mm-hmm. you can categorize them that way, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Although I'm not, I will say personally, I have like, I am very, like, I like history. I'm interested in history. And I'm also interested in like historical accuracy. Do you know what I mean? Like, like yes. I love as like, as like a fantasy mythology, like I love the idea of like a, a paleolithic romantic matriarchal past, but like I don't think that is actually maybe what was occurring, right? Yeah. But I am interested in all of those things, but I try and kind of distinguish between them. Like I am interested in knowing what was actually happening in specific places at specific times, mm-hmm. but I am not at all interested in like reconstructing those practices for my own practice. Right. Like I, I don't, I'm not interested in like doing magic as if I lived in the bronze age because I do not live in the bronze age. Like I'm interested in knowing how they did it. And I am interested in like adapting that into the culture where we live, you know what I mean? Which I think of as like a translation project, just like when I'm translating Orphicims from like Uh, Greek language into English Mm -hmm. language, I, I am really, what I think I am doing is I am translating them from like Grecophone late antiquity to like modern America and more broadly Anglophone paganism generally. Well, if you take the word translate at its Latin roots, mm-hmm. that's exactly what it means to 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 take it and put it on another late, right? Latum mm-hmm. on another on another field, basically. Exactly. And and exactly. It not just change the language. It's yeah, much it's more reason, than that. Sometimes I prefer the word interpret to translate because yes. I, I worry that when I say translate, people like want a more literal translation that I am giving them. Although I do, you know, I, I do a lot of like footnoting. So it's not like I'm mm-hmm. like trying to hide why, like what I said is not exactly what that text says. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But so like, and I think that in terms of like translating language, but also more broadly, I am interested in doing that. But I, what we say in my circle is uh, no reconstruction except imperial deconstruction. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> you know, and like, Very so good, I'm yeah. interested in learning what they did in history and it's one of the reasons I'm specifically interested in Greece, because I think like, you know, in a lot of ways, the like, not just because I'm Greek, but more broadly, like what we think of as like Western civilization, which like, mm. 
I'm not a fan of that phrase, but I don't know what else to call this thing. Sure. Like this sort of imperial behemoth that like just rolls yeah. its way across the world, ruining everything it touches. Uh, yeah. I mean, maybe other people have different opinions about the ruining, but like, I'm not really on that colonial imperial theme. Yeah. Thank you. Sure. But like in some ways I think like that culture is at least the way we experience of it. A lot of it develops in Greece and like Christianity, like we think of that as being indigenous in Judea, but it's actually not. It's indigenous to Greece. Like what we yeah. call modern Christianity, like started in Greece. So I'm interested sure. in that time period because like you can sort of see how it rose and that gives you some information about how you roll it back. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But, but I'm mm-hmm. never interested in going backward, right? I'm not looking. I see. Yeah. I, it's not yeah. that I want to live in pre-Christian times. I want to live in post-Christian times. <laughs> Which, yeah, I mean, I no see. hate to my Christian brothers and sisters. You know what I mean? No, like, no, they can I do their thing. But, yeah. like, as a, like, the, the sort of cultural construct that includes Christianity and empire and colonialism, which I think personally are, like, in, power structure, like power structure included, right? Yeah, they're entwined yeah, together. Yeah, yeah, I yeah, would like yeah. to live in a world after that. After that, yes, the God- you know. So, God- I, so well, I'm interested in looking at how that came into being, and also how it like, but you know, like when you look at it in like the British Isles, I feel like you're looking at it when it's it's like already so powerful and it's acting on another culture. Whereas when you look at it in like in Greece and the Levant, you're looking more at it like rising up slowly. So I feel like if you can understand its beginnings, you can learn how to understand its end. So that's one of the reasons I'm particularly interested in like Mediterranean late antiquity. Mm -hmm. But also, I mean, that is also where my ancestors are from. Almost all my ancestors are from that region. Although I have a little bit of like, my father's mother who was adopted. So like, I don't think of that as my culture at all. Like, but genetically I have some like, what I think of is like generic mixed white person, like some British yeah. and some Irish and some, some Scottish and some Greece Norwegian. And... <laughs> but I don't, you know, I didn't know any of that family or like interact with them. In any, so I don't yeah. think of that as my culture at all. Like my yeah. culture is Greek and Jewish and like yeah. for Pennsylvania, which mm-hmm. like has its own culture. You that, know what I mean? That, like I that's speak a nice a little, mix, isn't that? And I speak uh, a little uh, Pennsylvania uh, Dutch. Like that's what that culture oh, right, is, right? Like, right, yeah, sure. Right. Sure. So I grew up in that gotcha. culture as well. Well, I'm glad I asked you the question about category because sure. because I really, I really, I really like it. There were also a few new categorizations, at least for me. They're in there, and I, I, I really like that. Very interesting. Now let's take a break as announced and let's hear a little piece of music again by heather dale well little is maybe a bit hmm, wrong said it's a bit longer it's about well uh, not that long anyway it's about eight minutes and something but it's an incantation and you should really try to let yourself fall into that actually she calls it a reiki meditation and it goes by the name, and I found that very fitting for our interview, by the name of Bonfire. So, we'll hear Bonfire, a Reiki meditation, but also called an incantation, interpreted and conceived by Heather Dale. After which we will return to the interview with Sarah Mastros. And at the end of the interview, we will again hear Heather but in a completely different style of music again, and this time it's a song called The Dream of Ronave. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Okay, but for now, 
Let's hear incantation.
Now let's go back to 18-year-old Sarah. Sure. Right. So we took off where you, where you and your sure. BFF um, were basically leaving the Scouts at some point, I guess. And how did it go from there? Uh, so I studied theoretical mathematics at the California Institute of Technology. You did, uh, really? which I don't really recommend. Like I did not <laughs> enjoy my time there. It was. Brutally. I mean, also, I do want to say, like, I'm talking, you know, this is 20 years ago, so hopefully they've, like, cleaned mm. up their act. But when I was there, it was, like, brutally competitive and, like, grotesquely misogynist. Like, okay. out of a thousand students, I was one of less than a hundred females. And it was, like, okay. that didn't improve the community. But, I mean, I learned a lot of math and science, which I do like. Um, and then I went to graduate school in theoretical math. There's some, like... I mean, other things are happening. I, I'm continuing to do magic through this time. Um, and so I'm starting off with Solomonic Magic. But even like even at, when that was the first thing I was learning, I was like uncomfortable with the like nasty commanding aspect, which to me, uh, and also the Christianity, right? Which the Christian aspect was easy to get around because, you know, the Solomonic grimoires broadly as a category are like, renaissance christians pretending to be ancient jews yes. so i just decided to like decided to believe i want to be clear like i did not think this was a historical reality but i just decided to believe that this was a corrupt later version of an ancient jewish one so i just okay. like rolled it back like if there was christian stuff in it i just rolled it back to the jewish kind that mm -hmm. i was fine with mm -hmm. so i really thought of like solomonic magic as a corrupt form of the magician that solomon the magician king did and and i still choose to think of it that way so i like my solomonic magic is like an older, right? It's informed more by like sort of PGM style stuff or like Sefer Razim is a book I look to a okay. lot, right? Mm -hmm. um, but broadly, like what what would Solomonic magic look like in late antiquity? And Jade Stratton Kent did a lot of like really cool stuff of like well, actual yes, history absolutely. on that. But I he was like, on the show a few weeks ago. You, you yeah, he's, awesome. yes, like, yeah, he's like yeah, the magician yeah, yeah. I like, like when I was a kid, that's who I wanted to be when I grew up, although I didn't know him until I was an adult. Yeah, right? But yeah, like, if you had yeah, asked me, what, if, if guy, I had yeah. met him when I was 13, I would have been like, I want to be that guy when I grow up. Mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm, what I mean? Mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. um, so I was really interested in that Solomonically, but it was largely like, I didn't like the politics of the Solomonic Grimoires, I guess, but I just didn't do it that way. Like, I just thought like, well, that's how, you know, that's how like those white rich landowning dudes treated their employees and their kids too i'm just gonna be nicer about it like i'm gonna do something but i'm just like not gonna be a jerk i'm just gonna ask nicely and that worked well right mm -hmm. um i was really resistant to i tried hard to be jewish for a long time in like a religious i tried hard to be a monotheist for a while mm -hmm. right during that period so i'm doing a lot of something but also you know I, I worked briefly at JPL while I was in school at okay. the Jet Propulsion Labs. I didn't do, I mean, I like made coffee and like did filing. Like it was not, an inter <laughs> it was just like a student work job. Right. But at that point I became really interested in Jack Parsons, right? Mm -hmm. And the early OTO because yeah, sure. I don't, I don't know, because like I worked in the same office where Jack Parsons did, like I walked past his house on the way Amazing. to work, right? Yeah, so like yeah, the, I yeah. became really interested in that. And in the Caltech library, they had... 
I don't, you know how sometimes you're in a library and you can almost like smell a magic and you just like wander the shelves until you find sure. it. And there's a book that's just like a little extra sparkly. Well, that book for me was um, like a compilation of Austin Osmond Spare, which okay. I regret not stealing from that library. But <laughs> as far as I know, it's still in that library, which I now believe was probably Jack Parsons copy. Like, that's probably where I learned Austin Osmond Spare from as okay. I think about it. Because it's it's a little weird that that was in the Caltech library. Like, you know what I yeah, mean? Like, but it was. It right. And they like actually, this place there. Yeah. They actually had a, yeah, right. But I actually, and it was, it was one of those where I like, I like wove through, like I smelled it in a yeah. dream, and it, but it really was, right? And I, mm. I regret not taking that book with me left when I left this. <laughs> so that's when I sort of got into like more modern, like OTO cast magic. Because up till this point, I had tried Wicca, and this is no complaint about Wicca, but like the particular Wiccans I met when I was 13, one, couldn't magic their way out of a paper bag, all of them put together, and two, was like not a safe place for a young woman to be. So I bailed yeah. on that community yeah. quite yeah. quickly, yeah. which yeah. is not a commentary on Wicca broadly. I just like, the, the first coven I met was shitty, and I yeah. was 14, so I just assumed they all were, yeah. right? Yeah. But, so like... It was then that I started, you know, I, and I had just moved, like, I was, I wanted to meet people, right? This advice I have about meeting people, I wanted to meet other magicians, too, because I, like, my co-magician was at Carnegie Mellon, right? Like, I didn't, mm -hmm. she was not local anymore. So I was looking for people, so I briefly joined the OTO, which, like, paid off in the terms of, like, I met cool people, but wasn't really, like, my scene, like Thelema, like, to me, just seems like religious libertarianism, which is Cool, I guess, if that's what you're looking for, but is not what I wanted. Right? Yeah, but they were, they were nice mean, yeah. people. I learned a lot from the actual people, right? Which I think is yeah. more important. Yeah. So my this, basic idea of Salima is interesting, but then, then it yeah, becomes I mean, a religion. Like yeah, interesting, yeah. I guess. In truth, I feel like Salima is probably more interesting if you grew up like with relatively strict religious, probably Christian background that you're working through. But like, I grew up yeah. like liberal hippie communist yeah jewish ish yeah but like yeah. we didn't go to synagogue like we were we were yeah. jewish yeah, yeah, in the yeah. like ancestral ways and the yeah. family yeah. ways but less yeah. so in the religious ways like the if religion. you had asked yeah. me what religion was it was jewish but like that didn't really necessarily yeah. impact my life that much except that i was mm. not christian and i yeah. lived in bible country yeah so i yeah. think that's yeah. what it was for thelema for me like they were rebelling against a thing that like i didn't need to rebel you didn't against. have to like, rebel to it. i exactly. already yeah. i grew up in rebellion against that thing yeah. right yeah. i already yeah. knew they hated yeah. me the whole time yeah so yeah. by this point, I'm in graduate school in Pittsburgh, right? Mm -hmm. um, also in math, right? And I'm starting to meet people, which is where I live now, although I moved away from Pittsburgh for a while. So at this point, that's in Pittsburgh is where I really had my first like serious community of sort of what I think of as real magicians, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, and I also blah, 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 blah. There's some part of time in Delaware where I met a bunch of people and co-magicians, including Alison Chikosky. Like Alison oh, Chikosky and I okay. met when we yeah. were like 20. Yeah. So, like yeah. Allie and I like did Solomonic magic together when we were kids. And then both of us like did other things. And now mm -hmm. apparently now we're both back to doing a lot of Solomonic. <laughs> um, right. So I started to sort of meet, kind of I started to be where like I didn't think I was the best magician in that room which in truth was an unusual thing up to that point right yeah like I would go to these witch meetings I was like uh cool like I also like the goddess but are we gonna are we gonna like magic though 
Yeah, right? yeah, and yeah. honestly, some of the OTO stuff I went to felt the same way. Like, yeah, cool, blah blah blah, freedom. But like, when do we get to the summoning demons part? Because that's what I'm here for, <laughs> right? So this is when. But I met a bunch of other people. I guess broadly, we would have described ourselves as chaos magic magicians. But I think it was more that each of us had our own style, mm-hmm. and chaos was like chaos magic was an easy umbrella to throw all that into. So yeah. many of those people that I met then, I still work with. Like, remember I said a coven meeting? Probably half of those people I met through that, and some of them were there with me when I was like 20 right okay. and my business partner Simon Zealot like the Zealot in Mastros and Zealot he is like right. I would say the other person there who is like really got serious about magic and has been doing it the whole time right mm-hmm. so that's mm-hmm. when I feel like I really started to branch out at that point like when I came in to that group I was doing mostly like Solomonic and Kabbalistic work and that's when I just started to learn like lots of other stuff that's about I think when I learned when I got access to like the PGM the Ma- Magical Greek Papyrus which are really right. like I'm very into your, right? your thing yes I mean you would imagine I feel like from everything I've said you'd be like oh yeah Sarah would definitely be into that that's sure, when I started sure, to do that magic sure, which sure. I guess at this point in the story is early 2000s in mm-hmm. grad school I finished grad school and then I'm I work as a you know, originally I was going to get a PhD in math and become a research mathematician. And I'm about to say something that like most people did not need to get most of the way through a PhD in math to figure out. But like math is actually very boring. I mean, <laughs> not actual math, which I still enjoy, but like doing I, I did not want to sit in a cinder block room and do math 12 hours a day, actually. Like mm-hmm. I make math, but that it turned out. Like, it, I don't know how to say this. Like, it wasn't until I was about to, like, side on the dotted line to do that for the rest of my life. I went, and I was like, oh, wait, no. And <laughs> at that point, I was teaching for the philosophy department because, honestly, because they paid more than the math department is why. Okay. Right? So I taught logic for the philosophy department. I was talking to my teaching supervisor. I was saying, you know, all I ever wanted to do was be, like, a natural philosopher, like Aristotle or, like, Francis Bacon. And he was like, you know, Sarah, what those people did for a living is just teach rich kids. And I was like, aha, I could do that. And I was already doing a lot of tutoring. I also, I think the semester before that, I had run the the drop-in math tutoring center. Like, the mm-hmm. math department ran a drop-in mm-hmm. tutoring center. I ran mm-hmm. that for a while I was in grad school. Okay. Right, so, like, I, I like to teach. I really did. That was, like, my favorite. That was actually my favorite part of being a professor was the teaching. I really loved that uh, part. It was the research yeah. I was, like, not that keen on. So yeah. that was when I decided, like, I am done with grad school. So instead, like, I was, I just, I was like, I'm just not going to finish this doctoral thesis. I, like, took a master's degree instead. And I went and I taught in private high schools, um, first in Philadelphia and then Connecticut. Um and again, I really like teaching. And so I met new magical communities there and I like just kept branching out. But every time I moved, I would find a new community. And again, I didn't really care what kind of magic we did. I just wanted to do magic with people who weren't terrible. So, right, so like <laughs> who that was differed as I moved around. So I met a lot of different people. And eventually yeah. um, I ended up back here in Pittsburgh. Well, I guess it's well, that, 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 a very that, long story, actually. Sorry. No, not very long, but a very, very nice story. Very nice story. Now, I think you have to watch the, the clock a little bit. So we oh, should yeah, now really. <laughs> no, 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 no. Let's now really talk about the Orphic hymns sure. because um, uh, I think that's something also uh, not only a speciality of yours, but that's something that is very interesting and a bit under estimated in a lot of magical circles. I don't, think so. A lot of people yeah. don't know enough about them. Um, so tell us about it. So the Orphic hymns are a collection of hymns of sacred, you know, 
the the word in Greek is imnos, right? So at yeah. some, like it's clearly the English word him. It has a slightly less like religious connotation in Greek, and there's a little bit more sure. of a sense of like an invocation, right? This mm-hmm. is a drawing a spirit into you. Like mm-hmm. that's the function of these spells. There's 88 of them. They cover a range. It depends exactly how you count. Maybe 87, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they cover a range of Greek gods, sort of all the ones you would expect, and also a lot of more obscure gods. Some of whom were so obscure that like they were known entirely from the Orphic hymns. Like that was all we knew about them until right in the last. I'm going to say maybe 40 years, we started to dig up some artifacts in Anatolia, right? In Turkey with like Mm -hmm. those names on them, which gives a really solid evidence for something that, you know, I think, but I think at this point, most like, I think everybody's on board with this claim is that the Orphic tradition almost certainly gets imported into Greek or at least it inherits from an Eastern tradition. Right. And like then turns into its own thing in Greece. And, and those hymns that we are talking about mm-hmm. are uh, definitely uh, from that time. So they are, they have been written at the time or are they later artifacts? Okay. So they were almost certainly passed orally for a while. Right. Mm-hmm. And probably like different, a rhapsode is basically like a bard, like different bards yeah. had their own, like everybody yeah. had their own version, just like Homer. Right. And then mm-hmm. they slowly coalesced into a written text. What we think of as the Orphic hymns was almost certainly written in, was definitely written in Greek in late antiquity. It was probably written on what we would now call the Western shore of Turkey, possibly yes. in Pergamum. Um, mm-hmm. Apocryphally, they are written by Pythagoras. I like that story, but I do not mm-hmm. think it is like literally true. But there is no yeah. question that, like, the Pythagorean cult is unquestionably, like, an Orphic cult. Like, yes, there's a deep relationship yeah. there, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so, um, mm-hmm. in English, there are basically four translations available. Thomas Taylor is a British neoclassicist from, like, the 1790s through, like, eight, early 1800s, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he was commonly known to his peers as Taylor the Pagan. Um, so he translated a lot of like Greek pagan material, including the Orphic hymns. So if you just Google like Orphic hymns in English, his are the translations you're going to read. They're very good. But as I read them more and more, I started to think like, hmm, that doesn't seem like something somebody in late antiquity Greece would have said. That sounds like something a British neoclassicist would have said. Mm -hmm. So I started more and more to like dig into the Greek. At that point, like I didn't. Like, I didn't grow up speaking Greek, right? Some of my older relatives spoke Greek. So I, like, had some familiarity with it. And this is going to sound weird, but, like, as a mathematician, I knew the Greek alphabet. So I could, like, sound Greek words out, kind of. (laughs) But I couldn't, like, read Greek. So I I was like, well, probably I should just learn Greek. Because, you know, a mathematician, Mm. I'm also, I'm pretty good at languages. So I just decided Mm. to teach myself Greek. That took a while. But one of the many things, like, the reason I wanted to learn Greek was... It started with the Orphic hymns, but then I wanted to translate other things too, right? So I eventually made my own translation. That's one of the four, right? In addition, basically, um, there's one by Apostolos Athanasakis, which first came out, I think, in the 70s, but most people know in a later edition. His translation is very academic and very precise, and his book has, like, very extensive and useful footnotes, so I really recommend it, right? Patrick Dunn put out a Um, an English translation approximately the same time I did. He is also a magician, also a pagan. Um, Mm -hmm. I really like his translation. If I had to say, I would say his translations are slightly more literal and mine are sort of more like 
Dr. Seuss. Like for mine, I really, <laughs> well, they are, but they're also more like they have a really heavy like meter. You know yeah. what I mean? And, yeah. and <laughs> they rhyme, yeah, but they're yeah, really yeah, yeah. intended. Mine are intended to be chanted, right? Mm-hmm. As are the ancient Greek ones. In ancient Greek, they're written in a specific meter called dactylic hexameter, which is mm-hmm. a weird meter in English. Like it's hard to make, it's not a natural way for English words to form yeah. themselves. Yeah. So, Many people translate them in that meter, which is in some ways more accurate, but I translate them in what we call the heroic meter, which is a very like, it's what people think ancient Greek, which is the same meter that Taylor is translating it. Most ancient Greek works like until quite recently, usually that is the meter we translate them in English. It's a very (laughs) like Mm -hmm. it's actually not the Dr. Seuss meter. He has his own, but it's got that kind of like sing song meter to it, which I think is really good for ritual. For chanting. Yeah. yeah, So mine are really very specifically designed to be said like out loud in ritual and chanted in groups. Right. Mm -hmm. So mine are like a little heavier, whereas Patrick's, I think, are like a little more like delicate and poetic is what I would Mm -hmm. say. But I I really think, look, Taylor's translations are good. I assume most people start with them because they're free. I feel like by the time you're going to buy a book of Orphic hymns, you should probably buy multiple translations and like triangulate between them to try and figure out what it actually says. Mm-hmm. Triangulate. That's from the meditation, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, th- thank you. And, and sure. um, um, I mean, what did you, why did you do that work? Why did you do that translation? Well, did, was this a I, specific need you have felt? Or? I, yeah. I mean, I started off reading them and it was just like, I don't think it does say that, Mr. Taylor. And I would like dig into the Greek just to figure out what it meant. And then I started mm-hmm. translating some of them for myself. I think the first one I did was Selene, the moon. And then I just started doing more. And I started putting them on Facebook and people were like, how do I give you money for this book? And I was like, oh, uh, I don't know. Let me think about that. And then I did a Kickstarter and then I wrote a book and put it out basically. So it was, ah, it was okay. a series of like slow, but there was also like definitely a push from the muses about like, make this happen. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Which I think is yeah. one of the reasons it turns out Patrick and I were translating at the same time. Like his book came out slightly before mine, but basically my Kickstarter came out and then his book came out. But he like he was he was a couple of months ahead of me, like in Mm -hmm. writing them. But we were Mm -hmm. both doing at the same time. And I really think like, you know, I think it's the same reason, like sometimes two very similar movies come out at the same time. I think like when the muses want something said, they say it to a lot of people just to make sure. Like probably they also tapped a bunch of other people who didn't actually finish it and make put out a book. When you talked about the 18th century translation, 17th, 18th century translation, um, and yours, uh, of course, language changes with time because people change, because thought change, etc. Um, but your translation also seems to go much for the for the rhythm. Let's put it that way. I'm a musician, so I I, I, I think the language, a lot of language, lives also in the kind of rhythm it gives. Um, do you think that? Time and language play a role in the translation of such old texts that will come from so far back. Uh, do do they have to change? In do they sound have to sound differently in the twenty first century than, for example, in the eighteenth? I think. I mean, I think there's 
different ways to go, right? So something that I read a lot about when I was doing the translation is actually Bible translation, right? Because yeah. that's like broadly the same time period. The New Testament is broadly mm. the same time period as the Orphic hymns, and yeah. they're both in Greek. And, and also like a lot of people have a lot of detailed thoughts about Bible translation, and they're doing kind of the same thing. So there's always this tension between like very precise sort of word for word, what we call mechanical translation, right? Where your goal is to like tell you exactly like what those words said. And then there's sort of the other end where you're sort of like, my goal is to like instill in a modern hearer, the same like state of, you know, these aren't poems, like they are poems, but they're, they're intended to produce an effect, right? So the Orphic hymn to Hakate, like its goal is to put Hakate inside of you. Mm -hmm. Right. And Mm -hmm. so my goal is always to like, think about like, like I just just like I was saying with I assume like as a magical exercise, I assume that Solomon invented Solomonic magic. I assume that Orpheus invented Orphism. So like yeah. you know what I mean? Um like like when Orpheus wrote that in Greek, he he had an intention. He was trying to do something. Mm. And so like mm. what I'm trying to do is do that same thing in modern English. And sometimes you have to move what that means. So like here's an example from from Torah, right? Hebrew Torah, much older mm-hmm. than either mm-hmm. Orphic hymns or like the mm-hmm. New Testament and also like a much more different culture because it's much further sure. back in history. It's sure. much less urban, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So like yeah. sometimes it'll say that that they wrote something on shards of clay. And I think in English that gives the that's like one step down from like they engraved it in stone. Right. Mm-hmm. There's some sense that that is like intended to mean it was really permanent. But actually what that means is they wrote it on trash that like like shards of clay were the most available material they had. Right. So right. that's as if in English I was to say I scribbled it on the back of an envelope. Oh, that's favorite. Yeah. Yeah. You know yeah, what yeah, I mean? yeah, yeah. Like so yeah, sometimes yeah, yeah. I think that's what I mean by there being this tension between yeah. like between what we call foreignizing and domesticating a text. Yep. And I yeah, always, yeah. my goal is always to do both of those things at the same time, but that's mm-hmm. hard. And also the Orphic hymns have a lot of like weird, like wordplay and puns sure. that are hard to capture. So I'm always trying to do all of these different things at once. Broadly, I will say that the more familiar I am with a spirit, the more willing I am to stray a little further from the literal meaning, which I do footnote, right? There's extensive translation yeah. footnotes. So yeah. people yeah. know yeah. when yeah. I changed what it said. How you got there. Exactly. Right? There are yeah. only yeah. two places that I can think of, right? Where I just flat out like change what it meant. So once in the hymn to Hercules, he is extolled as putting down the savage races. And I just flat out, I, I ref- no, like I'm not going to do that. So mine says like putting down savagery. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or like barbarism, something, right? Yeah, and then yeah. the other time is in the hymn to Apollo. He is extolled for keeping the races separate. Which again, okay. no, but I actually think in context, it means keeping species separate. Mm-hmm. Like it actually, it's mm-hmm. the same word in Greek, right? It doesn't yeah. mean, I don't, I, in that context, I don't think it does mean races of people. I think yeah. it means like species. So I translate it as like preserving biodiversity, <laughs> which like, you know what I mean? Good. But so well, place, but I footnoted though, I made those changes because I yeah. don't, like, I don't think that in today's world, those gods want to be known for that. Right. Sure. But. Right. And then so like Hermes him, I would say, is the one where I think I went the most off script. And there's actually two versions of it. There's a more literal and a author's preferred version. But as I said, you know, I've been working for Hermes since I was eight. 
Like, yeah. and I feel like Hermes in particular is a god who kind of appreciates that playfulness of, in a absolutely. way that some of them don't. So some of them are stricter than others, I guess. That's why also this podcast is called the Thoughts Hermes Podcast. Yeah. There you are. I mean, I exactly. Think, you know, he's, I don't want to say he's the only magician's god, but you know, he's no, a magician's but, you know, of god. Course, like, of, you know, of course. I think we're all into him. Of course. You know? Exactly. Now, um, uh, Sarah, uh -huh. you spoke uh, very early in this interview of your um, being part of the, I can't recall the name, ah, because the I didn't bring a bell, the sisterhood of, of the Krokopeplos. So Krokopeplos okay. is a Greek word that literally, it's often used as an epithet of goddesses and occasionally gods. It literally means like yellow robed or saffron robed. So croco at the beginning is the same word as the English word crocus, like a saffron yes. crocus. A saffron crocus, yes. So the color they are talking about is the color produced by saffron dye. Mm -hmm. It's like a golden egg yolk yellow. It's the mm -hmm. same dye that is used for like Buddhist monk robes. Okay. Although I will say that in both Greece and Like Buddhism, when they say saffron dyed, those things are actually usually dyed with turmeric because saffron okay. is very expensive and turmeric very is expensive. basically just yeah, same color. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. But crocopeplos in a more metaphoric sense um, almost always refers to like celestial gods. So Homer most often applies it to Eos, the dawn, golden robed dawn. It's I feel like mm -hmm. in that kind of really quite clear what we mean about it, mm -hmm. right? Um, the, mm -hmm. the PGM most often uses it for like Hecate. Right. Okay. Um, and in that context, you know how sometimes the moon is hidden behind clouds. And yes. so it has this like yellow Halo, aura, yeah, the yeah. golden mm -hmm, glow around it. Mm -hmm, okay. Mm -hmm. You know how that glow actually makes the moon look much bigger than it actually sure. is? That's mm -hmm. what I think of as the crocopeplos. And here's the way I think about it. Okay. Some truths in the world are like so bright that you can't look right at them. Mm -hmm. Right. So this is the goddess of like that liminal aura around the unknowable right mm -hmm, so as a mm -hmm. teacher right we have this technical jargon called a proximal zone of learning which is basically like there's stuff that's too easy like you already know it you can't learn it because you already know it and there's stuff that you can't learn because it is like so hard there are so many prerequisites like you're you're just gonna bang your head on the wall but there's this magical zone in the middle of yeah. stuff that you don't know yet but you can learn, right? I also think of the crocopeplos as that zone, right? Mm -hmm. The things like the, the, the zone of learning in both a literal and like a more metaphoric or spiritual sense. So the goddess right. of the crocopeplos, right, is actually sort of like, she's not any of the ancient goddesses, but many of them participate in her. So Hakate is a goddess of the crocopeplos. Okay. Artemis is a goddess of the crocopeplos. Mm -hmm. Aradia, right, is a goddess of the crocopeplos, right? So the sisterhood of the crocopeplos, despite the name, is not exclusively women, although in practice it is mostly women. Um, right. Basically like a pagan monastic order, right? If yeah. people want to learn more about it, they can go to crocopeplos.org. Yes, yes, we will we'll have that on the show notes so that people can go and learn more. But historically speaking, how old is, is oh, that sister? Very young. We're still in the process yeah. of forming. So there's like, right. it's like one little circle of us. But, you know, but it's right. still new and I will say it is rapidly expanding. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, it does, however, draw on like a lot of historical precedents. Different ones mm -hmm. of us think about different historical precedents. Um, the Abbey in, um, oh my God, my name... I'm sorry, the name of the exact town just like 
came out of my head. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the Rhineland, the Abbey founded by Hildegard von Bingen is, is one oh, of yeah. the like okay. model yeah. sort of, yeah. that's yeah. the kind yeah. of structure, right? That okay. I am aiming for, but there are other right. structures as well that we can right. right. But it is okay. definitely well, like understood to be monastic in the sense that it is like a commune. Do you know what I mean? Like it's a communal co-living environment that at least sharing, sharing that uh, at least uh, in uh, inside the one commune is like not for people who are married and have little kids. Right. Like it's a a monastic. Uh, Yeah. yeah. I guess. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. Well, thank you for that information. Now um, you told me before we started talking uh, here mm -hmm. online, you told me that you have new projects also coming up. So uh, especially a new book coming up. So tell us about your future, close future projects. So the big book of magical incense is, as you might gather from the title, about magical incense. Um, <laughs> so it's about half I go through and talk about like individual ingredients, right? So I think the very first ingredient I talk about in the book is frankincense. Um, and I talk about frankincense like I tell you what it is, like chemically how it impacts the brain, because most magical incenses yep. are also drugs. Like they, they sure. do stuff in your brain. And I'm not a chemist, mm-hmm. but I, you know, at least a little as remember, I mentioned that like my co-magician when I was a kid was an herbalist and now she's a naturopath. Well, in between, she became a biochemist who specialized in plant chemicals. Okay. So, and yeah. I lived with her during some of that. So I actually picked up a lot. of So it's, and there's some of that. Right. Um, and then I talk about like its historical uses and how it works like in incenses. Right. I go through ingredient by ingredient. And then the second half of the book is individual recipes. Right. Mm-hmm. But my goal is that less so than people like just following those recipes. Exactly. My goal is that it like teaches people how to make up their own recipes. Right. Because like when I read a cookbook in truth, I basically never cook exactly what they told me to cook, but it like inspired me to cook something that I wouldn't have made sure. otherwise. And that's sure. the way I think about it as well. So that will be out from Red Wheel Wiser. I think it's going to be out December 1st. It's available okay. for pre-order online, like at all the big places like Amazon and Barnes and Noble. But in truth, Mm -hmm. my opinion is that like the best way to pre-order it is to call your local bookstore and ask them to pre-order it for you. Like in truth, I feel like Amazon is the devil and you shouldn't in the bad way. And like you shouldn't give them money is my opinion. Uh, Right? I'd rather you like buy it, like keep your local witchcraft bookstore in business. Well, in any case, be it the devil or not, but in any case, your local bookstore will be happy about it. And it's important that we have local bookstores. Exactly. Like, fully with you. And as far as I know, they can pre-order them. Like, I think bookstores can pre-order them for you as well. I think they should be able yeah. to. Yes. Yeah. So, but it's available for pre-order that... everywhere. One nice thing about being named Sarah Mastros is as long as you put my name in quotes, if you Google me, it'll be, it'll come right up. You, like, I'm you easy always to Google. Find it. Yeah. There's nobody exactly. else named Sarah Mastros. It's just me. That is true. That, that I, I found out about that as well when I Googled you first. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Mastros, exactly. remember I said my family's name changed when we immigrated here? As far yeah, as I yeah. know, everyone in the world named Mastros is closely, like I can trace, they're, they're my cousin. They're all related. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, Sarah Mastros, well, that was a really fun hour in your company. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, well, glad to have you here. Um, maybe you have some final word for our audience to send them on their way today after listening to our show? Gosh, um, I will say here's my final word. My final word is like, just do magic. Like you don't have to read 8,000 books to prepare. Just start doing it right now and start doing it with other people like tomorrow. 
as soon as you can. And like just fortune favors the bold, just jump in and get your hands dirty. You know, as a beginner, it's actually pretty hard to mess up badly because you're just not that good at magic. So you can't really whip up enough power to really get yourself in that much trouble anyway. Just start doing things. That's my Absolutely. final so now, friends and listeners, you know what you have to do tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Sarah, thank you so much. Thank uh, you so much all the best to you for your projects, for your sisterhood and for everything. And enjoy your time. And thank you for being with us here today. Thank you. Bye, everybody. Bye now.
The Dream of Runaway. Song composed, written and performed by Canadian artist Heather Dale. It was great to have her back on this show. Always grateful that she lets us play her music here. And uh, well, I have to say a big thank you to Sarah Mastros and for a lovely interview that we shared. And I hope you enjoyed it just as much. And uh, go and get that book about the Orphic Hymns. It's really, really nice. And there, as you see, will also be a new book soon, as she pointed out towards the end. Go on the website, you find out all the details. Right. Well, thank you for listening. This was our episode number seven of season six. And uh, I hope that you enjoyed it. I hope also that you will come back next week. And uh, I'm going to tell you now, of course, who is going to be our guest next week. Um, well, I try to because um, pronouncing the name is a bit difficult. No, uh, seriously, it's Tsemame Mijehuti Setepentot. Um, I'm sure you have come across that name and Reverend Zemi is his short name and he is the founder of the Church of Flesh and Feather. He's a lecturer and author and he has recently published with the great Theon Publishing House here in Munich um, his book on Flesh and Feather and we're going to talk about this and his idea behind all that about his church and Uh, about his book with Theon Publishing. So do not miss that. It's going to be next Sunday, June the 13th. And I hope I will you have you all back here next week with us. For the time being, I wish you a good week. Until then, stay healthy, stay safe. And uh, well, take care. Stay tuned. Hear you soon.